Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, my friends, and welcome once again to our show. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, and I'm so glad that you have joined my brother and I today. I once again have some great news as we begin today's podcast. Many of you have been requesting that I create my books in audio format, and I have been listening to you. Volume 6 is completed and available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes, and 5 will be following at any moment. The rest will be coming along as time permits, so keep listening as I will be announcing them here on the show. In today's Cryptids in the News and History segment, there are giants in them there hills. Gigantopithecus, to be more precise. Kevin is going to delve into the history of what many believe to be the forerunner of today's Bigfoot in North America. And in part two, when we are done with this segment, you are going to think twice about taking the garbage out, I guarantee you. So do stay tuned for that. And finally, in part three, we will once again be answering our listeners' mail sent in by individuals such as yourself, which I am certain will be more than a little interesting, to say the least. But before we get going here, a big shout-out to a listener and a follower of my writings, Scott who just happens to be a middle school teacher. Follow along as I read this brief email which he sent to me. I teach middle school. As you can imagine, many of my boys don't like to read. And because I teach social studies and language arts, I show them a huge presentation presentation of myths and legends around the world at the end of the school year. Obviously, Sasquatch is included. I just received your volume one recently, so amongst other books, I showed them yours. I read an encounter, and it hooked them instantly. Therefore, I will be adding your entire collection to our library. Just getting some of these kids to open a book voluntarily is a win in and of itself. So again, thank you, Scott. What do you think of that, Kev? Yeah, that's a pretty cool teacher. Yeah, and uh, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, I guess, is now becoming required reading. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can definitely see that, right? Heading into the end of the school year, I remember the teachers trying to hold the attention of, you know, especially middle schoolers with anything they could, you know, as the school year winded down. And and what a great idea, though, to get the kids reading, you know, because those, uh, you know, the bite-sized, terrifying accounts are just what uh, the typical middle schooler needs to rope them into reading. Yeah, and uh, today there's so many distractions that, you know, to give somebody something they may be uh, interested in or a little out there, so to speak, kind of hooks them, as he said. You know, I got the hook in them reading them these stories, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Very good, interesting. Good stuff. I like it. Now I, I'm looking forward to walking down the sidewalk here in my neighborhood and maybe listening to some middle schoolers talking about uh, one of your books or talking about the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's real interesting. Peeled. Yeah, and anything we could do to uh, uh, gain audience and gain the interest of those that are interesting. This is all about a discussion, uh, and uh, we try to bring it uh, to every podcast, whatever we could dig up, whatever we could scratch out uh, to talk about, discuss, and further the conversation about Bigfoot and other creatures is, is what we're doing here. This is what we're here for. Absolutely, and I... You know, I, I got an ask there to the to the younger listeners out there. You know, I live down here in the south, so we would say, any of you youngins out there, you gotta, <laughs> if you youngins have a little bit of a viewpoint on uh, on the the podcast or on uh, the uh, books, send us an email to uh, bigfootterrorinthewoods.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, fantastic. We encourage everybody to uh, listen in. And uh, certainly, uh, if you're an audiophile, uh, I'm putting a lot of time and effort into these audio books, a lot of studio time. Uh, so do uh, purchase them, listen to them, and tell your friends about them as well. Good stuff. Fantastic, Kev. So let's, let's uh, get ready to rumble here <laughs> with this uh, discussion on Gigantopithecus. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, we're we're going to introduce Gigantopithecus, and uh, and uh, today's like a difficult or challenging day for pronunciation for me. And we'll talk about the uh, most recent ice age, the uh, Pleistocene ice age, and its role with Gigantopithecus. Um, and we're going to lead into exploring what's known as the Bigfoot. Gigantopithecus theory, or more commonly, Bigfoot giganto theory. Fantastic. And, yeah, yeah. And this, you know, this theory revolves around an extremely large ape, uh, of course, known as Gigantopithecus. And it's believed, you know, and estimated, we'll get into it a little bit more, that Giganto went extinct about 100,000 years ago around a time during the last ice age, the Pleistocene ice age. Um, and this is all estimated off of some remains of Giganto that were found in Southern Asia. And, you know, uh, many different anthropologists and primatologists uh, uh, studied these remains. And uh, they came up with this name, Gigantopithecus, which is the Latin word for uh, either giant ape or giant monkey. Wow, fantastic. You know, and again, here we have some people, uh, we don't even know who they are exactly, I don't, who just presume this creature went extinct. But then, of course, what if it didn't? Yeah, and we see it in science, you know, it seems like each year these days, uh, scientists, and most often it's related to the ocean, but sometimes it's related to a species of birds uh, or certainly plants and things like that, where, you know, the scientists had had uh, previously believed that that species was absolutely extinct and, you know, couldn't possibly exist. And then lo and behold, 
you know, they're on, uh, they have some type of exploratory submarine down under the ocean, and uh, they see one of these fish that they thought had died or died off, you know, uh, 100,000 years ago or something like that. So it happens all the time. Um, I I wouldn't be one to say that that couldn't be the case here with uh, Gigantopithecus or some evolution of Gigantopithecus. Yeah, it's it's remarkable, you know. And uh, once again, we fall back on uh, what I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago. Uh, just in North America, nine and a half million square miles. Uh, and then if you think about globally, how much uh, woods and forests there is out there and mountainous terrain and places where things could be and thrive and live and hide. Uh, it's, it's very easy for me to say these things could be out there anywhere. No, and we've seen it, you know, in some of the previous accounts that you've gone through in uh, podcasts and some of the cryptid, cryptids in the news that we've reviewed individuals are very close to these creatures and they barely see them you know they barely yeah. notice them there you know the bigfoot as we know it is is quite a stealthy creature when it wants to be absolutely but, but let's go back to uh gigantopithecus and talk about some of the stats that the uh scientists estimate so they say that it's likely that the creature stood nine or ten feet tall and weighed as much as 1,000 pounds. So that, mm. that sounds a little familiar, right? Yeah, it sounds a lot like Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> hence, the, hence the theory. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, some portion of the scientists, not all of them, uh, believe that the creature also walked upright. Um, but even if we're not sure of the walking posture of Giganto, uh, the scientists can definitely agree that it was one huge primate. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, as far as walking upright, many, many people uh, have seen Bigfoot uh, scampering along on all fours and then standing up. Yeah. Uh, or standing up and dropping to all fours and then standing up again. So they seem to go both ways depending on... Uh, uh, reasons we don't know, but how much ground they want to cover, uh, comfort, who the hell knows why they get up and go down on all fours. Yeah, and, you know, by the way, there's an amazing amount of research or that's gone into uh, Gigantopithecus, and it really all centers around uh, some small bones that were found in some limestone caves in southern China, you know, where they found basically like a jawbone from the creature and a lot of teeth from the creature. And then they're able, you know, being the scientists that they are, to, uh, uh, you know, recreate uh, what, the, what the creature actually looked like and when it lived just from that small amount of uh, bones that they found so far. Yeah, and you know, a couple of things very interesting relative to that. Uh, first of all, they took the leap based on just a jawbone or a section of a jawbone and the teeth. They then came up with a mock-up or a rendering or a drawing of what the rest of this creature looked like. Uh, and also, they could tell by uh, examining the uh, makeup of your teeth pretty much what you ate during your lifetime— 
Uh, and in some cases, they can even narrow it down to what area of the globe uh, you may have been living on if you were a human examining your teeth yeah. uh, based on what they find, you know, plants and things, where they were available, and they can kind of pinpoint what, what zone you may have lived in. Absolutely. And, and, you know, of course, they found the bones here in southern China, which at that point in time, when they believed the creature lived, were very rich uh, forests. So, uh, that, you know, and they believe, uh, you know, in some of the readings that I've done, uh, they believe that it ate primarily uh, fruits and vegetables. And it gets to an interesting point on, uh, you know, either the extinction or maybe the evolution, which we haven't talked about yet, of uh, Gigantopithecus. Um, there's an author by the name of Mark Strauss, and he published an interesting article about, um, uh, you know, the potential extinction in 2016. So, you know, relatively recently. And he talks generally about the fact that as an animal, there's certainly advantages to being gigantic, right? You know, you're, you're at the, you know, you're a bit of an apex predator. You're less vulnerable to predators if you're gigantic. Um, you're able to cover a lot of territory, you know, relatively easily while mm -hmm. you're looking for food. But, you know, there's, there's other uh, issues with being gigantic, you know, and one is you need a lot more food. You know, so if you're in uh, in an extreme climate change like the most recent uh, ice age, um, you really do have to evolve in what you eat and how you get the food. And failure to do that may actually, you know, lead to your extinction. And then another interesting part of the theory of being these very large creatures is that, you know, the, the research shows that these very large creatures uh, generally produce much less offspring. So, you know, the, the bigger you are in, uh, in some forms of scientific theory, uh, the less you reproduce. So there's less of you. So although there's less predators, there are less of you. So I thought that was pretty interesting, too. Very, very interesting. And, you know, uh, if you just look at a human being, it's normal for a, a couple to have one child uh, during a birth, uh, the odd, uh, the oddity being uh, having twins or even triplets. Right. And then, of course, if you think about food, if you're in an environment where there are plenty of things to grab from a, the bough of a tree, such as a piece of fruit, uh, some type of vegetation, and then those things start to dry up, maybe then your eyes are turned to the stream where you see something writhing around in there, and now you're trying to capture a fish with your hands. Exactly. That's that's this you know theory where, as the climate changes, you have to evolve or you know it become extinct. Yeah, or develop methods of capturing other creatures. Absolutely. That are around you. Yeah. So yeah. that's a, it's really interesting, you know. And even when I think about the birds around me, you talk about advantages to being giant. I watch some of the birds, like the turkeys, you know, when the, the, the males are trying to attract the females, they puff their wings out, making their profile look bigger or more intimidating. You know, they're trying to impress. And Absolutely. Cer certainly a Bigfoot, you know, if it was approaching something else, uh, they may think twice, or a Gigantopithecus, they may think twice about uh, 
bearing down on them or leading some type of an attack on them. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. So, well, fantastic. You know, and there's another angle here to, you know, this giant creature. You know, some of the uh, uh, folks that connect uh, Bigfoot to uh, Gigantopithecus or the Bigfoot Gigantotherus believe that uh, Gigantopithecus, just because of its size and, you know, if it, if it is a member of the primate, uh, um, you know, kingdom, it would have a very large brain. And, um, you know, perhaps the largest in the terrestrial animal kingdom. And, you know, with the upright walking posture, it could easily facilitate with the combination of their brain power, their dispersion across Asia and uh, perhaps uh, into North America as well. And then, so, of course, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, so uh, are you drawing out of that uh Perhaps the ability to make a better decision about having to move or, 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 or looking for something else that was more viable than uh, that which was uh, diminishing around them? Yeah, I mean, one could do that. And also, you know, that in all, almost all of these Bigfoot Sasquatch accounts that we talk about, Bill, you know, we, we come back to this stealthy creature that's curious, um, clever, you know, and uh, but extremely careful and, you know, you know, can get very close often to humans without being seen. And when it is seen, it usually is pretty close. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, where people see it from a long way away. Um, but, you know, it, it, it one could reach the conclusion and some have reached a conclusion uh, that study this type of thing, that it probably did have a pretty large brain. Yeah, and you know, I've always thought, uh, relative to these creatures, uh, and I've said it, uh, you could get one that uh, its its brain uh, leads it to be more violent, just like we see in a human, uh, a human being. Another one may be slightly off, so to speak. I don't like to use the word, you know, mental reta mentally retarded, but they could be, uh, you know, in their mind, uh, different demeanors, different personalities that come forth. Uh, and this is uh, duly noted when people have encounters with these things. There are many different ways that people encounter these creatures. Yeah, so... so Put that on your to-do list, you know, like if you ever run into one of these characters and you're trying to get your phone out and take a picture of it without <laughs> shaking, uh, you know, maybe we try to figure out how smart he is, too. <laughs> yeah, ask, ask him if they'll be willing to sit down with you and have a little discussion. We just want to talk about some basic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> now, li listen here, Bigfoot. Have a seat over here. You want half of my hero? I was wondering. <laughs> it's bizarre, you know, I mean, but it's funny, you know, we have a little comic relief here. Of course, of course. But, you know, one of the one of the theories of the or one of the uh, pretense of the Bigfoot Giganto theory is that um, perhaps uh, Gigantopithecus made a journey across the Bering Land Bridge from Asia and into North America. So we, you know, we do know that early humans, as well as other animals, you know, scientists uh, guess that they did cross this land bridge, which occurred, or, you know, that land bridge was exposed 
uh, when water levels were very low, around the time that Gigantopithecus is estimated to live, but not exactly at that time. But to me, you know, the error bars are so large on uh, both of these estimates, it could have occurred at the same time. You know, right. but the theory is, hey, perhaps they came across that land bridge and, uh, you know, came down into uh, what is now Alaska and Canada, northern Canada, and the western part of Canada and British Columbia, and then down into uh, the northwestern United States, which is, you know, one of the hotbeds of uh, Bigfoot encounters. Right. And perhaps they were here as well. Could be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all, all we're going off of and all they were going off of was a section of jawbone and some teeth. Yep. And then everything else is a guess. Yeah. Uh, you could say it's an educated guess because of the degrees the fella has on his wall. But really, they're venturing a guess. Yeah, no doubt about it. Educated guess, right? That's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because we're, we're talking about how these creatures may have uh, migrated uh, or not from Asia, in this case, we were talking about into North America. Um, I did come across some research that also looked at um, is, uh, you know, Gigantopithecus perhaps connected to... Uh, uh, you know, my favorite hairy man or the hairy man with the best name that I've come across. Uh, who's that, Bill? Bigfoot. No, no. The, the, yeah. Oh, 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 I didn't know you had a favorite in the I Yowie. Yowie. Yeah, he's certainly the favorite name. I mean, oh. I'm liking Yowie more and more every day. Uh, I have said that Australia is one of my favorite places in the world, so maybe that's what draws me to Yowie, but it is one heck of a name. But there, there are folks that have studied this giganto Bigfoot theory and tried to apply it to see if, you know, uh, Gigantopithecus could have made it across from Asia to Australia. And it's pretty interesting. So the opinions are pretty strong and the research is pretty strong. Uh, and, the, you know, the scientists have this uh, invisible east-west demarcation barrier that's called the Wallace Line that exists between uh, uh, Southern Asia and Australia. And the, the Wallace line is meant to note the migration limits of animals during the last ice age. So that the theory goes that despite the lowered sea levels at that point in time, animals from Asia never made it to Australia. Uh, and animals from Australia never made it up to Asia. So that's part of why you know, Asia, uh, Australia is such a unique place with the creatures that live there, you know. But, you know, there's one big exception here of one creature that may have made it from Australia into Asia and from Asia to Australia, and that's, of course, humans. Um, and if you do go down the path further with Gigantopithecus saying that, you know, perhaps it was this very intelligent terrestrial creature, maybe it figured out a way to get down there and uh, adapt into uh, Yowie! <laughs> <laughs> I think you just like saying that. I, do. I mean, that's that's I my do. rub on that. I do, I do. And it's, <laughs> it's interesting. So uh, speaking of uh, uh, liking certain things, uh, you know, the scientists, they, they, they all talk about this, that, you know, the water's just too deep 
for the creatures to get across. And of course, in my experience in Australia, I don't know how it was back in the uh, back in the Ice Age era, but boy, there's certainly some big sharks swimming around those waters too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. <laughs> Even if the water wasn't too deep, you, you'd very likely become a uh, uh, a shark's lunch cruising across the, there as if you were swimming. And the Shark Week show, all of those guys are hanging around down there, uh, catching all those big mamas swimming around there <laughs> coastally around Australia. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of great whites down there. Yeah, no doubt about it. So, you know, there are some holes in the theory, right? The, uh, the Bigfoot uh, Gigantopithecus theory. Um, you know, one of them is what happened to the bones, you know, so it's kind of, um, you know, there's just not a lot of bones around of this creature. Um, now, there's some explanations for that. You know, I talked about the fact that the larger the creature is, the less there are of them. And then we talked about the fact that it's, a, you know, believed to be a forest dwelling creature. And even today, you know, if you go down the Bigfoot Sasquatch path, um, it is, you know, generally believed to be something that's in pretty dense woodlands of one sort of another. So it is possible that the bones, you know, are are gone, you know, or they're there and they're not found. And then, of course, there's uh, other theories that, you know, there's a lot of creatures out there in the forest that would gnaw on the bones and, you know, until there was nothing left of them. You know, typically people talk about porcupines apparently uh, have an affinity towards chomping on uh, chomping on animal bones. Yeah, and I spoke to that hunter in Texas who, who opened my eyes to uh, squirrels and hares uh, having to gnaw on bones regularly and continually to keep their teeth from growing so big that they couldn't get food in their mouth. Yeah, it's a little bit of like a file that they trim their teeth down with. Exactly, like sandpaper or grinding stone. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and look, let's face it, just because you see a Bigfoot one day uh, in the middle of a field in a park uh, doesn't mean they're bedding down there at night. Exactly. So, you know, you know, and then another hole, which I mentioned, but I I do want to uh, come back to is that, you know, there's a relatively large time gap between the estimated existence of Giganto and... uh, the existence of the Bering Sea land bridge. But again, you know, we're talking about some pretty uh, pretty big estimates both ways and estimates about Gigantopithecus that are based on this single jawbone and a handful of teeth that they found. Yeah, and all of these things are, quote, educated guesses. Yep. We, really, we really don't know. We listen, we learn, we think, we ponder, and then we move on. You know, I mean... Uh, you, you you just don't know what these things. What we do know is we found a jawbone with some big teeth in it. Yep. And then so, if you if you um, do search on uh, our good old friend the internet, there's a gentleman that built a mock-up of Gigantopithecus, and uh, you can find an image of him standing next to it. In uh, he has it on display in San Diego in a museum there, San Diego, California. And um, it's it's pretty cool looking. It gives you a feel for its scale standing next to him. And then also, boy, it does look a lot like what we would call Bigfoot. You know, if you didn't know the background to that statue, uh, you would probably think it was a Bigfoot standing next to this gentleman that created it. 
Yeah, that's incredible. You know, and <clears throat> listen, kudos to these people for doing what they do. I mean, uh, the fact that the guy created this mock-up uh, so we have something to look at. Interesting, frightening, uh, but, you know, if nobody did anything, uh, there would be nothing to see and nothing to speak of. So I don't look at everything with a super critical eye. I just kind of uh, put it in my basket and, uh, you know, it's it's all out there for our consideration. Yep. And, you know, while I was putting this story together, I just want to give a shout out to, you know, some of our friends at the Bigfoot Field Research Organization. They have a lot of information out there on uh, this theory, our friends at Exemplor. And then, um, you know, one of I know one of your favorite books, Bill, and becoming one of my favorite books, uh, Ivan Sanderson's The Abominable Snowman Legends Come to Life. Um, he has some uh, amazing information in there, first-hand information about actually himself looking at these bones in the uh, apothecary in Hong Kong where they were back when he was writing this book in the 60s uh, and, and reaching his own conclusions as well. So, so shout-out shout out to those sources. Yeah, awesome. Uh, BFRO is doing a yeoman share of work out there. Uh, in all of their little uh, groups around the uh, around the country, so kudos to these people who are out there marching around, uh, looking around, digging in, gathering information. You know, uh, anything we can do to further the conversation and the exploration uh, is uh, time well spent. Absolutely, fantastic. So, are we ready to find out why you don't want to take the garbage out anymore? <laughs> now, this account was told to me by an old picker. And when I say picker, I'm using that word relative to, like, uh, our show, The American Pickers, people looking around for salvage, uh, valuables, things that may be worth some money that other people have discarded. Uh, this picker at the time was living in Tallahassee, Florida during the early 70s. And here is what this fellow Boone English had to say about his encounter. I like that name. I could see that down in Tallahassee. Boone. Yeah, Boone. Uh, when I first contacted you, Bill, I had said to you that it would be my pleasure to contribute what had, what had happened to me into your little journal. I had actually moved from Tallahassee in 73, and what I am about to share with you and your readers transpired in July of 69. I was 14 years old at the time, and back then my dad was a heavy equipment operator involved in housing developments, building construction, demolition, and damn near anything else you could think of where a piece of heavy equipment was needed. He could run a crane, dozer, and anything in between. In the back of our house, my dad always kept several 50-gallon drums in which he put his scrap metal. One for brass, one for copper, another for aluminum, and another for wire. This was all the booty, as he used to call it, that he gathered from job sites. A friend of my father's, a Mr. Davis, owned a scrapyard where I worked part-time and off the books on the weekends. 
It was then when Mr. Davis told me I could make money in scrapping that my eyes were open to how much cash was laying around in the garbage in the form of scrap metal. Now, I was too young to drive, but I had a Schwinn bicycle with three baskets on it. That's when I decided to begin my secondary career hunting in trash bins and garbage cans for scrap. At that time, the Vietnam War was still going on and metals were at a premium. In fact, even as a kid, I knew that many guys were stealing stuff like radiators from cars. And Mr. Davis just turned a blind eye and paid up with cash for such things. He had a small block house in the back of his yard that was buried beneath mountains of metal. And that's where a couple of really creepy cats spent every day chopping stuff up so small that nobody would be able to tell what it was when it came into the yard. In other words, they were destroying the evidence. The money was pouring in and out, and it was all cash. I was getting up really early in the morning and making the rounds all over town on my bike. On garbage day, I would hit hundreds and hundreds of residential trash cans collecting metal. I kept a series of wrenches and a hacksaw on my bike to cannibalize anything and everything, including the proverbial kitchen sink. I was having a ball with my little hustle, turning over several hundred dollars a week, and in two months' time, I had bought what would be my first car, which was a 1965 Fairlane 500 with a 390 and a four-speed. I paid $1,000 cash for it, and I was going to sit on it until I could drive. Aside from hitting the neighborhood cans, I began to dumpster dive around the area. A lot of people would sneak into businesses and complexes to throw large items into their dumpsters at night when nobody was around. I started to make some major fines climbing in and, in and around the bins, but it was a dirty and nasty business. And sometimes I got more than I bargained for, finding a coon or something else in the dumpster with me upon getting into it. The other thing that was that I had to get into the dumpsters very early in the day because after the sun came up and started hitting the metal, they were like an oven. You couldn't even touch the metal sides without burning your hands. Now, my dad knew that I was responsible, and at 14, I was already six feet tall. Every morning, I got up at 4 a.m. and went out on my rounds. I had learned my lesson several times over about just opening the lid on a dumpster early in the morning. On this particular morning, I was approaching a three-dumpster compound near the rear of a large trailer park. This set of dumpsters alone usually represented a 5 or a $10 hit for me every time I came to them. Now, these dumpsters were set on a concrete slab in the dark up against the woods. I always carried a couple of flashlights with me in case one broke or one went dead while I was out dumpster diving. It was pretty dark as I was riding up to the site because it was cloudy and there hadn't been a moon. There was a lot of noise coming from one of the dumpsters, and the steel lid was slapping up and down. The first thing that I said to myself was that there was a damn bear inside. I turned, parked my bike, 
about a hundred. I turned and parked my bike about a hundred feet away and picked up a couple of rocks to throw at the dumpster to scale whatever was in there away. When I chucked the first rock, I hit the bin squarely, which sounded like a sledgehammer hitting the side of a steel drum. As soon as I heard the noise, the metal lid came blowing open, and out from the can like a jack-in-a-box jumps this screaming gorilla. He flew out, clearing the side of the dumpster in one clean jump, and the lid came crashing down behind him. The side of the dumpster was nearly five feet tall, and he was maybe three feet taller than the can. He was standing next to it, snorting and growling like a wild boar. The noise was so loud that lights started to go on all around from different trailers. A couple of men actually came out of their front doors. Now, I was standing in the dark next to my bike, hoping like hell that this monster wasn't going to attack me, but I don't think it had the time to realize that I was even there. It turned and darted away into the woods and was gone. It was maybe only a minute later when a man ran over with a flashlight and said to me, What's going on here, young fella? When I tried to explain to him what had happened, he didn't believe me. And I told him that I was going, uh, I was telling the God's honest truth. He said to me, there are no big gorillas in Florida or anywhere else. Now get on out of here before I call the police on you. <laughs> well, as you would imagine, I left in a hurry and went straight home to tell my dad. He knew that I was not prone to lying and frankly, even he was having a hard time swallowing what I was saying. Later that day, he and I drove back over to where the sting had jumped out of the dumpster. We walked over to the can as I described to my dad in detail what had happened. As we walked next to the can, he looked down at exactly where I had told him the gorilla had landed. There were huge impressions in the soil next to the concrete slab. Two large human-like feet and the impressions were about two inches deep into the dirt. As soon as he saw them, his entire demeanor had changed. He looked at me, and then into the woods, where I told him it had run. I remembered him just shaking his head and saying, What the heck is a gorilla doing over here? Anyways, we both got back into the truck and went back home. That was apparently all the proof my dad needed. I told him that it didn't look like any other gorilla pictures that I had ever seen, it being way too tall and wide to be in the zoo. I called it the monster gorilla, and he just shook his head. What do you think of that? Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. I, and I love the fact that, you know, one, of course, it's good to hear an account where the dad tends to believe you know, his son, especially it sounds like it's a hardworking, you know, kid going out there crawling through dumpsters looking for some scratch scrap metal. Um, and uh, and then, you know, that they go back there and they come across this evidence, right? Footprints, large, you know, human like feet, two inches uh, into the ground. You know, sounds like it was quite the beast. And then his father you know, didn't uh, didn't have any issue. You know, he switched from perhaps doubting his son to all of a sudden saying, like, why is there a giant gorilla here? Yeah, apparently what he saw was evidence enough that his son had seen something. And just as he said, it leapt out of the dumpster in one bound. 
I mean, just that. I'm mean, sure. Okay, maybe it's standing on three feet of de- uh, debris in a five foot can, but the fact that it could just kind of boing and and jump out like a jack in a box, land on the ground is pretty amazing feat in and of itself. Definitely uh, quite the leap, and you know, it talks about the fact that after he jumped out, right? I think he said. He was three feet taller than the five foot high dumpster. So, yeah, this, you know, an eight foot beast jumping vertically out of a dumpster, that's uh, pretty impressive. A lot of power there. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, and here we go again. Uh, you, uh, you were talking about the Gigantopithecus having uh, possibly made some decisions to move into different styles of hunting or change its domain. Uh, entirely. You know, we see this again and again as humans encroach on uh, on uh, forest areas, on wilderness. Bears, possibly Bigfoot, possibly other creatures, know that there's food or they smell something in a garbage bin that brings them over there to investigate. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. You know, it's it's adapting and foraging in a different way, right? Yeah, I mean, if there was no dumpster there and no smell of food, this thing wouldn't be there. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. It wouldn't be there. I I saw a clip. I don't know if you saw it on the news this week. I was up early and flipped on the morning news, and uh, somebody had a video. I guess that was going around of a bear. A uh, black bear that was trying to get into a dumpster somewhere. I forget what state it was. And uh, the dumpster, I guess, was locked and it couldn't get in. So it actually, they showed it. It's standing up on its hind legs and it unlocks the gate that the dumpster's behind. You know how they're often behind kind of a chain link fence gate. It unlocks the uh, gate and rolled the dumpster out of the gate. So, you know, it's like, okay, I can't get in. I'm taking it. that's incredible you know so uh, they can figure things out i mean in a limited way but they have certain thinking faculties uh that enable them to kind of solve problems you know these creatures you know can figure out how to get to the food uh, yeah especially when they're hungry right and if not the last resort is just brute strength now, me, on the other hand, I want to try to figure out how to get to that Fairlane 500 that he was talking about with the 390 <laughs> and the 14. Yeah, you and me both, man. Any you of know, you out there got one that you want to sell for a grand, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I'll take two for a grand. In fact, I'll up it. I'll take two for two grand. Exactly. Oh, my God. Super you know, cool. It's funny. I, can't, I can't imagine, though. I mean... You know, you I mean, you can't imagine the stuff you might run into alive and dead inside of uh, a dumpster looking for scrap, especially up by you, Bill, if it's one of Joey's dumpsters. Yeah. <laughs> but, but then to have like, you know, this uh, uh, Bigfoot like creature jump out of it. Oh, my God. Jeez. Yeah. Could you imagine if he had gone closer uh, having not learned from experience to throw a rock at them and try to uh, get anything to get out of there before you approached it. Could exactly. you imagine? But you could tell he was so close, right? What do you say? He was so close to the trailers, the residential trailers. It's like, yeah, you know, he's he's trying to be sneaky, right? Yeah. But yeah, that well, would look, be the smart thing to do. It's a little bit embarrassing, right? You're wandering around digging through garbage cans looking for stuff. I mean, 
obviously people are going to be looking out the window. Probably some people on a good day are going to say, hey, what are you doing over there in the garbage, kid? I mean, there's easier ways to make a living. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, that was a fantastic tale, and I just wanted to share it with you. I thought that was so cool. That's awesome. So what do you got today in our uh, Listen to Mail segment, my friend? Yeah, so we got some good letters in, uh, again, from around the world. You know, like like we talk about offline, Bill, when we look at the statistics, it's amazing how far and wide uh, the the podcast reaches today. And, uh, um, you know, so we start out in the southern United States, out in the bayou, with an email from Bob in Louisiana. Yeah, one of my favorite places. Yeah, super cool. And uh, Bob says, your show is really cool. We have many reports of what we call the Rougarou mm. and the Hairy Man in these parts. Haven't seen nothing speaking for myself. What have you heard, if anything? I guess about well, Rougarous and Hairy Man in Louisiana. And he says, great job, guys. Fantastic, Bob, and thanks a lot for listening in and and, uh, contacting us. You know, we've heard a lot, and as time goes on and uh, we do more and more of these shows, uh, you're going to hear exactly uh, what has come my way uh, in the form of uh, Rougarou. Uh, Some really weird supernatural stuff seems to go on around Louisiana, uh, I don't know if that has anything with to do with voodoo practitioners down there, and I know there are a lot of them down there. Uh, but you got some strange goings on uh, in that neck of the woods, my friend, and we will be touching on it. Mm-hmm. I, I guarantee you that. So stay tuned, my friend. Stay tuned. Yeah, we we like the we like the Rougarou. I got I, that's definitely on my list for uh, cryptids and other oddities. Yeah, fantastic stuff, Ben. Cool. All right. We're going to go to uh, William in Tanzania. So, ooh, long way away. Tanzania? And, Tanzania. And, uh, wow. William says he is a goodwill worker. And uh, he said, these podcasts are incredible. And he says, from your speech, you sound as though you are a God-fearing man. And you spoke of having encounters with angels. How about sharing them with us when you have a time? Fantastic. Wow. You know, well, you know what, uh, William? Uh, thanks for being out there and doing what you're doing. Uh, uh, goodwill worker. I guess you're like involved in uh, helping people medicinally, maybe putting wells in. Uh, there's a lot of people out there doing a lot of good things, man, and they just sacrifice their lives and times uh, and time for the good of their fellow human beings. So I'm really uh, impressed by uh, you contacting us and listening in. And, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I think maybe once in a while I may drop in a story uh, or share one of my own uh, angelic encounters with you and the audience uh, our focus, of course, is on uh, Bigfoot and other creatures. But when we start to talk about supernatural things and whatnot, uh, I may drop one in here or there. Uh, so stay tuned and keep listening. Uh, and great to have you on board. Yeah, good stuff. And, Bill, you know, I'm just thinking here real time, maybe one of these days we'll do a, 
a flipped over episode where you can do, uh, you know, uh, a cryptid and oddity. Uh, uh, and it could be, you know, one of the uh, angelic encounters if you'd like to share that. And uh, I'll uh, go through uh, one of the accounts that you've recorded. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, we could do that. We'll figure out a day, Upside Down Tuesday or something to do that. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. All right. So uh, we go from uh, there to Lillian in Michigan. And we know uh, uh, Michigan, a uh, lot of uh, Bigfoot there and also uh, a very common place for dogman encounters, as we've reported on. So... Lillian uh, said, I read the account of what happened in the Upper Peninsula. And of course, for our uh, folks from around the world, the Upper Peninsula is part of Michigan, a northern part of Michigan. Uh, in my home, oh, and that's where she lives. So she says, I read the account of what happened in the Upper Peninsula in my home. When these things don't want you around, you best watch your step. Regards, Lillian. Lillian sounds like she means business. <laughs> yeah yeah and you know uh we'll do that one day uh i know the account that she's talking about uh and many people have uh uh found or sighted these creatures up in her neck of the woods uh the michigan upper peninsula account was just a mind-blowing account of uh, both an encounter and uh, evidence of what these things are capable of doing when they get PO'd at you and you being in their area. Mm -hmm. So I promise you that we will do uh, and we will speak of that account uh, one day and uh, open the audience's eyes to just how extreme the power of a Bigfoot can be. Uh, and it's going to blow your mind for sure. Good stuff. Yep. yep. Yeah, very rural part of the U.S., that uh, upper peninsula of Michigan. Yeah, I mean, there is like nothing up there. A handful of uh, people dispersed here and there. And once again, here we are talking about how much wilderness there is in North America. Uh, and just because some people live there doesn't mean the wilderness goes away. You know, a body, a couple of bodies in a warm house with a fire going uh, does not scare these things, <laughs> you know, out of the area, you know. No, no. Wow. Cool. All right. Our last letter comes from uh, a long way from Michigan and a very interesting place. It comes from Mohammed in Saudi Arabia. Holy uh, I think smokes. This is our first uh first uh note from Saudi. Fantastic, uh, man. And Mohammed writes, this subject matter is quite interesting. Where and when exactly did this all begin? Thanks for your diligence in bringing such things to light. All right, Mohammed. What do you well, think? Kev uh, where did where did it all where and when did it all begin? Oh no, 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 no. You're <laughs> not throwing this at me. <laughs> How do I begin? <laughs> oh, Come my on, goodness. That's an easy one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, in North America, uh, the first language uh, that I recall, 
regarding the Bigfoot was in the late 60s. Uh, but where it began, as we dig into these encounters and some of this historical evidence, and uh, I mean, it really seems to have been going on uh, for hundreds of years. And of course, we have limited written word. Uh, we have oral tradition coming from some indigenous uh, people that were here long before my ancestors were. Uh, but that's all we have to go by. So, And now here we are talking about Gigantopithecus today, right. who they think, they uh, hypothesize it went extinct during the last ice age. Right. So really... Uh, you could say anywhere from a couple of hundred years to what ten thousand years or a yeah, hundred thousand years. I mean, you know, uh, to uh, Gigantopithecus. But yeah. you know, it's. Uh, I think you said it well, Bill. The, the the accounts that I've seen, the written accounts, you know, in newspapers and stuff like that here in North America back back in the eighteen hundreds. We've talked about a few of them, including you know uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's Bauman. Inc. Bauman account, um, and then uh, you've also touched on um, some of the Native Americans, Native North Americans, I should say more broadly, where you know they have uh, had uh, in their totem poles with all of the creatures we wouldn't argue about existing now, uh, like bears and deer and elk and things like that. They have often featured. Ahead of a hairy man or ahead of a Bigfoot, as we would call it. So yeah. you know, that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's a fantastic story. And that's what keeps us coming on. Am I right? Oh, it yeah, keeps... there's, a, there's a ton, uh, ton of information out there. You know, I, as folks know, our listeners know, as they listen more and more, I'm a newcomer, you know, uh, to... Uh, to the research, and uh, uh, it's pretty fascinating, everything that's out there. Fantastic show, Kev. And, well, I think that's a wrap for today, but I want to end the show, as I always do, with a warning to our listeners. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight.